And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Tom Ginsberg. I'm a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. And I wrote a piece called Don't Pack the Court, which reflects my views about the various discussions these days about what to do about the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been a lot of discussion in last year's election cycle about how to, quote unquote, fix the court. Various proposals, including cycling court of appeals judges onto the court, introducing some kind of term limits, changing the majorities required, and ultimately the proposal I was responding to brought forward by congressional Democrats to actually expand the number of seats on the court. To summarize the piece, I don't think expanding the number of seats on the court is a good idea. Court packing, of course, has a bad history in the United States. It's something that Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried in the 1930s and his own party rejected. It's seen as somehow unfair in a way that even the similar exercises to affect the composition of the court under Mitch McConnell and the Republicans didn't reach the same degree as court packing. And I sort of agree with that. I think you can categorize all these various reforms between those that increase the stakes of judicial appointments and those that decrease the stakes. And part of our problem as a country is the Supreme Court is deciding too many important issues which should be left to the political realm. The stakes of controlling the court have never been higher. And that's why we fight presidential elections over who's going to get to appoint people to the Supreme Court. That's why we had the Merrick Garland incident and McConnell's reversal when it came time to appoint Amy Coney Barrett. One of the reasons that packing the court would raise the stakes, just ask yourself, what would the Republican response be? And most likely, the next time they control the Senate and the House and the presidency, they'll expand the court again. 13 seats to 18 or whatever, whatever it takes. And you're in a kind of tit for tat cycle where each party is just trying to get its people onto the court at any cost. And that I think is likely to mean that packing the court isn't going to be a stable equilibrium. It's going to just induce a new cycle of fighting over the composition of the court. My view is that packing the court raises the stakes because now all of a sudden each individual becomes super important and was a seven to six vote, just like a five to four vote now, you know, that person in the middle is going to be super important. I'd prefer to see reforms if we're going to have to have reforms that reduce the stakes of the Supreme Court, reduce its importance in American life. I think it should be deciding issues of law. It should not be deciding major issues of social policy. It shouldn't be picking the president and the various things that it's done in the last couple of decades. So that's my view of what we should do. How to fix the court is a big question, but I can tell you how we shouldn't fix it, and that's to pack the court. Tom Ginsburg's piece called Don't Pack the Court was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Today I'm joined by Mustafa Akyol. Mustafa is a Turkish writer and journalist, the author of a number of important books arguing for a liberal interpretation of Islam, most recently reopening Muslim minds, a return to reason, freedom, and tolerance. We had a conversation about two things. One, we talked about the current state of a country in which Mustafa grew up in, about the terrible impact that Recep Erdogan is having 
on democracy and liberalism in Turkey. But two, we really had an in-depth conversation about why Muslims and also non-Muslims should hope for Islam to adopt a liberal conception of itself and why the two sets of people who are skeptical of that, hardliners within Islam, but also Western Islamophobes, are wrong to think that Islam is incapable of adopting such a liberal tradition. I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you will too. Mustafa Akhyol, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Yasha. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Well, it's a great pleasure to meet you, and I've really enjoyed your new book. So you are making an argument that Islam and liberalism are reconcilable, that it is possible to shape a liberal form of Islam. Why should we believe that? What is the core of the case for that? And why we, whether that be Muslim believers or whether that be people who are not of Muslim faith, should want that? Thank you, Yasha, and thanks for actually summarizing what I'm trying to say in the book. Of course, first of all, I should clarify what liberalism is, especially for people who are suspicious about the word. I know in the U.S., liberalism is one of the political positions, but I'm not speaking about that specific understanding of liberalism. I'm speaking of liberalism as a broad. One of the real problems with liberalism is just that if you know anything about intellectual history, it just really is the term for the creed to which you're committed, to which I'm committed But it also is just so easily misunderstood, right? So in the States, it can mean liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican. And, you know, liberalism can mean leftism or something like that. But then often in Europe, it means something like neoliberalism. So it means something like, you know, a smaller welfare state or something like that. And so in every context, there's a different problem of the word liberalism. And yet I think it does speak to core truths, which are important. So what others? You were just about to say that. Definitely. I mean, I think the same thing is about the word democracy, right? I mean, the communist republics call them democratic <laughs> republics, which were, were really not the case. So we should specify. So I subscribe to classical liberalism, I often emphasize, which means I believe in a social order and a political order, which the rights of the individual are upheld and respected by the states. States are minimal and they don't coerce citizens against their will unless there's a legitimate reason for it. Especially when it comes to religion, I believe in a society where religion is practiced voluntarily by individuals and voluntary communities but it is not imposed by the state or even in a communal setting. And so before we get into the question of Islam, let me put a question to you that critics of liberalism often press against liberalism, which is that liberals just don't understand the importance of religion in general. Let's keep Islam for the side, even Christianity or Judaism and other religions. You know, liberals like to talk as though we're all choosing our style of life, the way that you might choose between having Domino's or Godfather pizza for dinner. And that that really underestimates the kind of depth of conviction that many people have, the importance that faith plays in their lives, and the importance that other kinds of ties play in just structuring how they think about the world. You don't come into the world as this atomistic individual who at the age of 18 sort of decides, do I want to be a punk rocker or do I want to be a faithful Catholic? You come into the world as a member of a family with obligations to it and the wider community. And liberalism, supposedly, according to people like Alistair McIntyre, for example, gets that sort of stuff wrong. And that's why it's sort of hostile to religion. What is your response to that set of charges? Well, there might be liberals, and I think there are liberals who don't understand the power and importance of religion in any society. I just hope I'm not one of those. 
And I do still believe that that critic of liberalism, which is actually has become popular in the U.S. too, right? I mean, Patrick Dineen has written a book about why liberalism failed, and there's a whole argument there. Well, the thing I would say about that, I'm not saying that liberalism is good because religion doesn't matter. I'm not saying religion is like choosing your pizza. It's not that simple. But precisely, religion is very profound and important. It should still be based on freedom and not coercion. And of course, we are born into religious communities. I'm a Muslim, alhamdulillah, as we say, thank God, I'm happy with my faith, partly because I was born into a Muslim society and I grew up in a Muslim community, that is Turkey, Muslim. I was born into a Muslim family. So there are, of course, deep connections between identity and religion, and there's a profound belief. But precisely because of that, I think coercion and religion shouldn't come together. When it comes, it actually creates counterproductive results. One thing I emphasize is that the coercive systems we have in the Muslim majority world today in certain countries like Saudi Arabia or Iran doesn't make individuals pious. It makes them hypocritical. Mm. So I think that's an interesting religious argument for why people who care about faith and about their religious communities should be open to a liberal interpretation of their religion. We'll come to that, particularly in the context of Islam. I would put it the other way around from a political point of view, as somebody who is reasonably secular, that, you know, I deeply respect religion. And actually coming to live in the United States, I think, has given me greater respect to religion than perhaps I had growing up in a deeply secular society in Europe. But it's precisely the recognition of how important those questions of faith and conscience are to people, which to me is the strongest argument for liberalism. Because unless you live in a society in which everyone has exactly the same faith and exactly the same set of ideas about God, which is a society that probably has never existed, but certainly we are further away today in virtually every democracy in the world than we've been in the past, precisely the recognition of how important religion is to people entails the obligation to let them make autonomous determinations in that world. Now, that doesn't mean to be naive and think at the age of 18, people sit down like a blank slate and make some kind of decision. Most people will remain members of their faith communities they grew up in, and they have this strong sense of obligation to members of a family community. And that's absolutely fine. But there are also people who change their mind. There are also people who don't want to live like their parents, who have different ideas about religion. And precisely because we recognize how important those questions of religion and conscience are, we need a state that ensures that they have a freedom to do what they want, to go to religious services they choose, to be faithful or not to be faithful, to lead a religious or a secular life. So I agree with you. I think there's many liberals who formulate this the wrong way, but I think on the right account, the importance of religion is an argument for liberalism, not against liberalism. Exactly. And when you read John Locke today in his letter concerning toleration, for example, I mean, I take John Locke as the important figure in Western Enlightenment that is very relevant to what I'm trying to argue within Islam. You will see that he's making an argument for freedom, not because he doesn't value religion, but he's trying to stop religion being used for coercive power and for the divine rights of kings and for sectarian violence. And he's making arguments from within Christianity, not against Christianity. He offers a reinterpretation of Christianity where rights are given not to rulers, but to individuals, to human beings. And he explains a lot of things about like, if you have a Christian commonwealth that is a state, actually one sect will dominate it and will persecute the others. That's why it's wrong which is precisely the argument that I'm actually advancing today. Oh, when you have in Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism as the official Islam, 
you will persecute the Shiites, which is exactly what's happening. Or in Malaysia or in Iran, if you have Shiite Islam, then you will have other groups, minorities, minorities within Islam or minorities outside of Islam that will be persecuted. So to make myself clear, I'm not arguing for secularization of Muslim societies in a forceful way. People can be pious in the liberal order I believe in. People can be fully pious and women can wear the niqab and you know that should not be banned. But some women might not wear that and they can wear a mini skirt and that should be tolerated and respected as well. So I'm believing in a free society. So piety is genuine and not based on coercion and hypocrisy. And I also understand that there is community and there's individual and every society has a balance between those. And it is fair to say that individualism flourished in the West more so in the past few centuries, but it is coming everywhere because there are social dynamics towards that. When people now log into the internet and they read whatever they read and they are educated and they know the world, they will inevitably become more individualistic. This is not just a Western thing. Uh, to say that you know Western ideas do not matter for the rest of the world, well, then you can say democracy doesn't matter for the rest of the world. Chinese regime loves that argument, of course, or you know other autocratic regimes uh, in different parts of the world. Whereas I believe some of the values that flourished in the West in the past few centuries are indeed universal. Take abolition of slavery. It came from Britain. It was a good idea. It took a long time to persuade some Americans, of course, to that ideal, as we saw in the American South. But should we say abolition of slavery is a Western ideal that doesn't matter for other civilizations? No, it was a good universalistic ideal. And I'm glad that ultimately, despite a lot of resistance, abolition of slavery was accomplished in the Islamic civilization as well. And in my book, I show that some of the reactions we hear today from some Muslim conservatives against gender rights against equality between men and women against religious freedom is very similar to the objection to the abolition of slavery we had a century ago say in the arabian peninsula so let's get to a specific case for a liberal islam and it seems to me that there's two very different sets of skeptics who have different values and different goals but perhaps sometimes make somewhat similar arguments and one of those is let's say hardliners within islam who say that a liberal Islam would in fact not be true to religion, but it would somehow impoverish or be treason towards religion. Uh, and then, of course, there are uh, uh, sort of Islamophobes who are not themselves Muslim, who say that there's something about Islam which makes it incompatible with tolerance and seeking peace and a more liberal interpretation of it. So let's start perhaps with a case for why it is that we should think that Islam can be liberal in that kind of way. And then we can sort of deal with each of these sets of critics. Sure. And you point out to an important fact, and that is illiberal Muslims and Islamophobes agree a lot on the argument that this is Islam. It's not ever be compatible with individual freedom. Islamophobes make this case to demonize Islam, whereas illiberal make this case to demonize liberalism. And I actually disagree with both sides. Well, first of all, I should say, if you just look at the lived experience of Muslim majority societies today, you will see that actually there are hundreds of millions of Muslims who are happy to be living in liberal orders or who aspire for that. I recently published a report by the Cato Institute, Freedom in the Muslim World, 
Muslim majority countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina or Albania are already free like Western European countries. And there is no demand there for an Islamic state or Islamic religious policing. The pious conservative practicing Muslims in those societies are actually happy to be living that way because they got used to living in a secular order in which they can be pious in the way they want. So it's not that there is a big chunk of 1.6 billion Muslims who are against liberalism. It's actually already a spectrum. In Turkey, my country, which has huge political problems these days, we can speak about that later. But even many of the practicing Muslims in Turkey will not want a Sharia state, as we would call it. They're just happy to be fasting in Ramadan by their own choice and going to the mosque maybe on Fridays, but they don't want the state to impose on them a religious practice. So are they committed doctrinaire liberals? No, but some of the ideas, some of the principles of liberalism are already accepted by a big number of Muslims around the world. Plus, even in countries like Pakistan, certainly Saudi Arabia or Iran or even Malaysia, I mean, there are certainly powerful orthodoxies that want to say, kill people for apostasy or blasphemy or, you know, keep on doing religious policing. But there is a growing resistance against that, not just by secular liberals who are welcome, but also what I call Islamic liberals. And I'm especially emphasizing that tradition in Islam. Now, who are Islamic liberals and what is Islamic liberalism? This trend in Islam began in the 19th century, late 19th century, actually. The pioneers were people called the new Ottomans in the Ottoman Empire, people like Namik Kemal. And they were Muslims, they were Ottomans, they were Arabs or Turks. But they looked into the West and they realized that Western democracies are doing better than the Ottoman Empire in almost everything. There's more justice, there's more scientific progress, a lot of things they wanted to see in Muslim societies, but they saw it in the West. So they started thinking about this gap and they tried to bridge Western enlightenment, in particular liberalism, with Islamic thought. So there's an interesting 19th century legacy here. In the Arab world, this led to calls for religious reform, like Muhammad Abduh in Egypt, very famous reformist. Their argument was there are tensions between the existing Islamic tradition and universal human rights. I mean, they were not called universal human rights at the time, but let's say a free society. But these tensions come from not the divine core of Islam, but the tradition that has accumulated over time. So while we revisit certain things, we will not be abandoning our commitment to the divine core of the faith. We will be just interpreting uh, historical interpretations of it, which is, of course, exactly what Christianity did. I mean, for centuries, many Catholics thought there is no problem in having an institution called the Inquisition and torturing people for saving their souls, supposedly. But at some point, there came an argument that, no, this is wrong. And it's not even in the Bible. The Bible doesn't actually say that. Jesus actually didn't say that. But that recognition also looked into the texts and found new meanings in there that early Christians didn't think about. Like, for example, the idea that a secular state is justified from the saying of Jesus, you know, render unto God what is God's, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. That was a modern recognition. I mean, medieval Christians did not necessarily think like that. So today, Islamic liberals from 19th century onwards are looking into the Quran and they see a verse like la din, which means there is no compulsion in religion. Aha, uh -huh. here we have the message in our own scripture. But then when you look into it, you see that the Quran said that, but medieval Islamic jurisprudence actually sidelined that. 
And they said, no, no, actually compulsion is necessary. And they trivialized the meaning of the words. And so this seems like a sort of first answer to the sort of Islamophobic critics of your position, which is to say, they might say, well, look, there's just something different about the Quran compared to the Old Testament or compared to the New Testament that makes it less hospitable to a tradition of toleration. And if you look at, on average, many Muslim societies around the world today being less free than many Christian societies, the reason for that is sort of doctrinal. It has to do with what the religion itself is. And I take it that your answer is that, no, actually, there was a tradition of that in Christianity, but it had to be recovered and it had to be amplified. And Islam now needs to do the same thing. Why did those paths diverge? Why is it that this happened earlier on in the Christian world than it did in the Muslim world, perhaps put differently, since I think there was moments in the Muslim world when it wasn't a path like that. Why was that path abandoned for the last few centuries? Well, this goes back to the big question of why modernity arose in the West, but not elsewhere. And of course, you know, historians have different kinds of answers to this. But before that, I'll tell you one thing. I admit that there is an additional challenge in Islam compared to Christianity, per se, in the fact that the marriage of religion and power, as I call it, took place in Islam right at the beginning compared to Christianity, where it happened three centuries after the founding. Our common friend, Shadi Hamid, you know, makes this point a lot. He says there are founding moments of religions. And when Jesus Christ passed away, left this world, crucified, and if you believe, raised to God three days after, he didn't leave behind a state or an army. It was just this tiny civil community. Christianity became a state only when the Roman Empire made it an official religion. And the persecutions in the name of Christianity began only after that. But he, he died at the hands of a state. He died at the hands of a state. He didn't leave behind a state. He dies at the hand of That's true. So I admit that there's a difference here. That is why when you look into the scriptures, there are a few passages in the New Testament which can be interpreted and which was interpreted, by the way, for coercion or violence, but by and large, it's a peaceful teaching. I'll say that the Quran has some passages that are harsher than that. And the Prophet Muhammad's mission includes a phase where he began as a preacher, but he ended up as the leader of an armed polity in Medina, which launched wars and battles and so on and so forth. But let's not always co compare Quran to the New Testament. Let's also compare it to the Old Testament. And when you look into the letter, the Old Testament, I mean, the first of the scriptures, actually, you will see that the battles of Joshua with the polytheists, pagans of the Holy Land, it was no less violent. And actually, there are actually harsher passages in the Old Testament. So it's not just about comparing the texts of different religions. I'll say that. But however, what we Islamic liberals are saying is, yes, Prophet Muhammad established a state and not a modern state, but let's say a polity, which had legislation, like some corporal punishments and which launched wars. And those are in the Quran. But this whole political experience was not integral to his religious mission. He came to the world, he was touched by God, he was revealed to give a message of monotheism and ethics, and he actually wanted to do that as only a preacher, as you can see in the Quran. Because he was not allowed, he could have been killed like Jesus too, but he was able to flee and establish a new order, just like the Israelites did after you know fleeing from Egypt. Yes, he did establish a state and, and an army, but this was just a historical coincidence. It doesn't mean that we have to repeat that political experience all the time today. 
Of course, that political experience was extended in classical Islam as the caliphate, right? When Prophet Muhammad passed away, one of his companions, Abu Bakr, was elected or he was given bayah, some some allegiance by the community. And then, of course, the Sunni-Shiite split comes from that. So Islam was born with power and it continued with power. But what I am saying, based on the Islamic liberals since the 19th century, which came from Egypt, from Turkey, from other Muslim countries, is that while the teachings, the ethical and religious teachings of Islam are universal, but that historical experience is not going to be repeated all the time. In other words, when I read the Quran today saying, go and attack the polytheists, I don't think that that tells me to seek a polytheist in my neighborhood and go against them. It was a historical experience explaining something. Of course, not everybody understands this way. The people we call Islamists believe that Islam is deen badawla, which means religion and state. So they think it is integral to the historical mission of Islam to establish political orders based on Islam. And those political orders will kill blasphemers and not necessarily atheists, but let's say apostates and do religious policing. So there's a huge problem there. And in my book, I show this. And what I wanted to also show in my book is that Muslims establish a state with blasphemy laws and apostasy laws because that was what everybody was doing at the time. If you look at the Byzantine Empire and the Sassanid Empire, which was there right at the birth of Islam, they had very similar laws. Christianity today, when they look at Byzantine laws, they're not saying, oh, we have to do the same thing because we had it right there. I think in Islam, we need the same recognition that history changes and not everything in our history is integral to the religion as it is a universal teaching. So there's an intellectual argument, which if I understand it, rightly rests in part on sort of separating the religious and the political role of the prophet. There's also a more practical argument, right? Which is that I might, for example, agree with you as to the theology. I'm not particularly theologically knowledgeable, so I'm agnostic about that, but it sounds plausible to me. You're doing pretty good, yeah. But still have skepticism about the practical part of the argument, which is to say, how likely is it that something like, I don't know what the term is, but you prefer a liberal renaissance of Islam is likely to happen within our lifetimes. What are the reasons to be optimistic about that and what would have to happen for that to come about? That's a very good question, which actually connects us to the earlier question you asked, which was why this happened earlier in Christianity in the beginning of the 17th century, but not Islam yet. And my answer to that would be, well, of course, it's hard to explain why things happened in history, right? Why modernity, capitalism, a lot of dynamics there. Some people think it's even the topography of Europe with city-states where a simple big empire actually helped. Farid Zakaria has a good argument there. I actually used it in one of my writings before. But here's one thing I would like to emphasize. And also that one thing gives me hope for the future of the Islamic civilization. And that is, we are probably at the darkest era of the Islamic civilization. And it is not an accident that liberalism arose in Europe, emerged in Europe, after the darkest era of Christianity, which was the 17th century, beginning with the Protestant Reformation, all the killing between Protestants and Catholics and all the violence, all the people burned at the stake for being heretics, beheaded by Christians, ultimately gave many Christians a search for something better than that. All the overkill of the post-Reformation turmoil 
brought the recognition that there should be a way out of this. And a lot of people thought the way out of this is to have the right Christianity teaching of the state, right? But John Locke and came said, no, your right doctrine is the other man's heresy, and you are a heresy to him. So let's have this kind of neutral government, a civil magistrate which only protects the rights of the people but do not impose the doctrine. I believe in Islam today, after what we have seen at the hands of ISIS, at hands of Al-Qaeda, after what we're seeing with blasphemy laws in Pakistan, every month somebody's being killed or jailed, supposedly for you know blaspheming against the prophet. There is a growing number of Muslims in the world which saying enough is enough. We are Muslims, but we want to be out of this. We want to live in peace. We want to live in toleration. And I think that's why the very fact that we've had a really bad time in the past few decades in the Islamic civilization is the basis on which we can build a better future. That sounds pretty convincing to me. The strongest argument I can come up with against this optimism comes, I'm afraid, from your own book, which is that you make a distinction between, I believe you call them fundamentalists, and illiberal believers. So as you put it, the number of Muslims who support ISIS or who support Al-Qaeda, who support terrorism, is very, very small. That really is a tiny fraction of believers, and this is seen within the mainstream religious movement as something evil to be contained and combated. But you also say that there's a much, much larger number of people who reject liberal interpretations of Islam. But for example, I believe in Egypt, you mentioned in Pakistan, a majority of citizens believe that apostates should be very severely punished up to the death penalty, that people who commit adultery should be very severely punished. So sometimes I think these two things are put into the same pot in an unhelpful way, both on the right and on the left within the West. So how do you think public opinion might start to move towards a more liberal interpretation of Islam in those societies? How might people not only reject of terrorism and so on, but they might also start to embrace more tolerant views on how to treat apostates or how to treat people who don't live up to the moral strictures of a religion? Thanks for pointing to the distinction I make in the book in the very beginning introduction. Like the Western public opinion, understandably, is very focused on the terrorists, right? ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. And these groups are terrible. They're a big problem for the world. They're a big problem for Muslims too, because they attack other Muslims as well. So, I mean, ISIS bombs Istanbul and says, because this is an apostate regime. So it is a problem for all of us. But as you rightly point out, I also say this is the burning problem, but it is not the only problem. Maybe it's the only security problem, but from a human rights perspective, there is a much bigger scene of illiberal religiosity, illiberal interpretations of Islam. And I show that they are somehow connected in the sense that when ISIS slaughters Shiites, whenever they find them you know, in Syria or Iraq, they do this by calling them an apostate. In return, you know, mainstream illiberal authorities say, no, no, you cannot that easily call Muslims apostates. You can do this that radically. Or when Al-Qaeda bombs Paris or Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorists kill innocent people in the middle of, again, France, they do this for taking revenge of the blasphemy against Prophet Muhammad. They rely on the Sab al-Rasul verdicts, which is insulting the Prophet verdicts. And the mainstream illiberal authorities say, no, 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 you can't do that that fast. You know, you should take them to a court. You can't do this in the non-Muslim agenda. So they're trying to soften the word, which is good, which is helpful. But I'm saying there, hey, listen, these extremists are a warning sign that there are bigger issues that we have to deal with. 
Because if you have a religious teaching that says apostates actually should be killed, can be killed, executed, no matter how mild you do this, you will have a problem. And the extremists are a warning sign that this is really becoming a very, very big problem because once you have this teaching, you don't know where it will go. And ultimately it goes all the way to ISIS. And here's one thing. I'm from Turkey. I watch the Turkish Islamic scene as well very closely. ISIS and all the violence it committed had brought a lot of thinking within the Sunni Turkish spectrum saying that, oh my God, these guys are doing some of the things that are actually in the fatwas of our Sunni jurisprudence. We really have a problem here that to deal with. So these are two separate problems, but I think the extremists have brought a recognition that a deep questioning of certain things that are in mainstream Islamic jurisprudence is overdue. Some try to await this. Some try not to open the question. I mean, I see clerics saying that, you know, no, those are the fanatics. And if you do this in a mild way, it's like saying, yes, you can beat your wife, but not too much, right? <laughs> There's this kind of quote unquote, supposedly moderate interpretation. Whereas a lot of Muslims see this and say, well, we need a deeper reckoning here. And I'm trying to show in my book how that reckoning can be done without Muslims abandoning their faith, but understanding that that faith unfolded in history in a political, cultural, social context, which is not with us anymore. And to try to repeat the verdicts in that context today is disastrous. And it is disastrous not just for people who look at Islam from the outside, from, for Westerners or others, but also disastrous for Muslims themselves which has a lot of implications, you know, in terms of persecution, persecution on one sect by another, which is also making a lot of people become ex-Muslims. A lot of people are losing the faith precisely because it is illiberal. Let me ask you a question about what non-Muslim liberals should do in all of this. I think that often liberals in the West, especially if they're on the left of a political spectrum, don't stand in solidarity with liberal Muslims. And I think that there's a couple of understandable reasons for why they are shy about doing so. The first is that they see the amount of Islamophobia in Western society, certainly when you look at right-wing populists like Donald Trump and the way that they talk about Islam, their first instinct is simply to stand in solidarity with Muslim communities as they exist in their own countries. And those Muslim communities often aren't thoroughly liberal, or at least are non-liberal elements within those. And so they worry about, you know, looking like they're not willing to stand up for their compatriots who are under threat, or that they might end up being similarly critical of Islam as some of those right-wing figures. That's one of the reasons. I think the second reason may be more sort of form of fear about Western imperialism. Who are we to side with one side or the other side within a great civilizational debate? Who are we to say we are on the side of people in Pakistan or in Egypt or in Turkey who are standing up for a liberal interpretation of Islam. This really isn't our role. We should stand aside. So what would you say to philosophical liberals who are struggling with this question, who want to stand up for liberal values everywhere in the world, but who are also mindful of the real pitfalls in that area? Well, first of all, to Western liberals, I will say, please keep the West liberal. Because, you know, as you know, as I know, there are currents now in Western society from the extreme right or the extreme left, as we've seen in the U.S. too, that are actually trying to undermine the liberal order. There's right-wing nativism, and there is another left alternative to that, which is trying to curb free speech, 
or freedom of religion or the democratic system, you know, legitimacy of elections. So it is important because keep the bar high. I will say this, especially also in terms of religious freedom, in particular in France and French-speaking countries, because what I see there, it's tendency to curb the expressions of Islam in the public space. I mean, France is the country that has banned headscarves in high schools and public offices for a long time. Now there's a talk about the far right in France, from coming from the far right in France, Marine Le Pen, about banning the headscarf even on the street. Hopefully that's not going to happen. But when pious Muslims, innocent people, law-abiding citizens cannot practice their faith freely in Western societies, you know what happens? What aboutism happens? Look at the Islamist literature, even internet, you know, look at the social media. All they will tell you is this, this freedom thing is a lie. They don't want us. They will never accept us. They want freedom for their wine, but not for our headscarf, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes France <laughs> or, you know, Quebec or sometimes Belgium with some of the illiberal attitudes towards religion, as I would see it, I'm sure some people in France would disagree. By having a problem with halal foods, uh, kosher too, by the way, it's, it's actually the same tradition, you know, Judeo-Islamic tradition. And they are giving Islamists an argument saying that Muslims will never be tolerated in liberalism. Liberalism is biased towards secular life, but not religious life and so on and so forth. That's why I emphasize upholding religious freedom in the West so much. On the broader issue of what Western liberals can do in terms of this big discussion of Islam in the West and Islam and liberty and so on and so forth, Islam and liberalism. First of all, yes, there is some elephant in the room, which is the colonial history of the West. That is in the mind of every Muslim, and that is also another root of whataboutism. I mean, whenever I speak about human rights and Western liberals and democracies and some of the good things there, oh, are you speaking about the West that occupied Algeria and brutalized it for 130 years? Are you speaking about England, which, you know, colonized half of the world? Are you speaking about U.S., which occupied Iraq in 2003 and actually triggered a Sunni-Shia war? Are you speaking about Western capitals, which supported Middle Eastern dictators as long as it served them? These criticisms are very legitimate. That's why I think it's important for the West to come to terms and be more honest and remorseful for its colonial uh, legacy. That has happened. I mean, it's not that Western capitals or elites are today saying we did a wonderful thing with colonialism, but they're still there. I would like to see Macron, who preaches about enlightenment values to the Muslim world, saying something remorseful about what his country did in Algeria, and he refused to do that recently. So there is that. However, this history of colonialism should not come to the level of saying, oh, universal human rights are actually just a Western colonial project. We should not preach that to anybody. Everybody has an authentic culture which we don't deal with. Because besides colonialism, I mean, colonialism was the dark aspect of the Western history in the past few centuries. But there's a brighter aspect to it, which is equal citizenship, which is liberal democracy, which is human rights, which is freedom of religion and speech, which is why... Muslim refugees trying to flee from their countries today, they're not fleeing to Saudi Arabia. They're not fleeing to Iran. They want to flee to Sweden or Germany or, or Western societies because th there is in something good there. So we should criticize colonialism and that colonialism should be honestly acknowledged and 
there should be an apology about it. However, this shouldn't come to what I see in some of the post-colonial narrative, which is to say, well, every society has standards in their own and, and there's nothing to say. Well, no, there was something wrong that the Hindus were burning their wives once the husband died, sati tradition. And it's good that that was overcome thanks to modernization. And there was something wrong about slavery in the Muslim world, which was eradicated by Western pressure and Islamic liberals as a combination of the two impacts I'm here. So I think we should be fair. And one more thing, while criticizing Western colonialism and all its crimes, we Muslims should also look into the fact that, well, when we had power, we also did create an empire stretching from Spain to India. And it was maybe tolerant for its time and there were some good things about it, but it was an empire and it was not colonialism in the modern sense, but it was not necessarily wonderful for the people who went through that experience and ask that to minorities in the Balkans or, or, or the Arab world. Well, I still think that a very liberal phrase by Lord Acton, which is that absolute power corrupts absolutely is sadly the best forward guide you can have to human history. And it comes from human nature, not from the nature of you know particular religious or ethnic or other groups. Let's talk about the country in which you grew up and lived until quite recently, a country that you know I've spent a little bit of time in and in the city I spent a little time in and really love Istanbul. Turkey has now been ruled by Recep Erdogan for over a couple of decades. And it seems to be moving precisely away from a liberal interpretation of Islam, I suppose. Perhaps that's overstating it, but it certainly is turning away from a liberal interpretation of a state and from a democratic conception of a state. Tell us what the impact of Recep Erdogan on your country has been and how that relates to the religious movement from which he stems. Sure. Thank you. Turkey is a sad story for myself and probably the biggest disappointment I've had in life so far, the trajectory of Turkey. Because in the early years of the Justice and Development Party led by Tayyip Erdogan, I was supportive, very supportive and sympathetic about it because here was a party with Islamist roots, which reinvented itself and wanted to make Turkey join the European Union and realize some of the liberal reforms that the EU were all, always promoting, but which were never realized, like more rights for Kurds, minorities, even some feminist reforms took place in Turkey in the early 2000s. And part of this, I suppose, was against the background of a secular regime in Turkey, which was not altogether liberal either, which actually had some laws on the books that were quite similar to the ones you mentioned in France of women wearing a headscarf, for example, not being allowed to enter, as I understand it, public universities. Sure. And thanks for reminding that. And while entering that discussion, I should say secularism doesn't necessarily always equal liberalism. There can be illiberal secular political experiences as well, which is what happened in Turkey, which is what happened in Iran under the Shah before the Iranian revolution. And actually, that's a part of a tragedy. The Islamic world has never experienced liberalism. We did experience some secular autocratic states, but it was not liberalism. It was not limited government. So the importance between secularism and liberalism, I think, is an important one. And that wasn't surprising to me. But this observation, I have to say, I hadn't thought about before, that there really aren't examples of liberal Muslim states. There are examples of predominantly Muslim countries that were ruled by illiberal secular leaders, but that there haven't been liberal leaders. That's very interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the only untried paths, which I hope we will come at some point. You can say Tunisia today is heading towards maybe a liberal trajectory, although it has big problems with economy and, and a lot of social problems as well. But Tunisia is maybe the only Arab country which really drafted a liberal constitution together, Islamist and secular. So there are some pockets of hope, but generally we've seen Islamism, we've seen Arab socialism, we've seen Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism, we have seen communism, but <laughs> there has never been a fully liberal democratic experience in the Muslim world. Now, Turkey before Erdogan. Now, actually, it doesn't look too bad compared to what has become, but it was secular Turkey, but yes, not very liberal. Its secularism, first of all, was very rigid. One of the iconic debates in Turkey, like the abortion debate in the U.S. for decades, I mean, Turkey's big national debate for decades was the headscarf. Can a Muslim woman wear a headscarf and become a university student? We're not even speaking about high schools. Or Can you enter the campus wearing a headscarf? And it was not allowed. Under the tutelage of the secularist generals and the constitutional court of the time, there was what I call secularism policing. And that culminated in a reaction that Erdogan has been surfing on for 20 years by now. The tragedy is that when Erdogan came to the scene, and it was not just Erdogan, by the way, the AKP was a more diverse party. There were other important figures. He was just one step ahead of the others. When AKP came to power, they said, we reinvented ourselves. We are Muslim Democrats. We will realize the EU reforms. We will make Turkey a member of the EU. And I said, that's great. If we can have that synthesis, that's wonderful. And things went well. But ultimately, it turned out that for Erdogan, honestly, this was all a Machiavellian tactic you know, to secure himself and then to consolidate power. And the more he stood in power, especially after the first decade, after 2011-12, he growingly turned authoritarian. And Turkey today has become worse than the secular era that I was criticizing, honestly, the 90s. When you look at freedom of speech, it is a disaster. I mean, you say a few things critical of the government on Twitter, the police shows up at your door in a few hours. So 60,000 people have been prosecuted for insulting the president. And Turkey has had traumas like a military coup attempt, which is real, which was not a joke. And yes, there is a Kurdish separatist terrorist movement that has been threatening. But the way the government handles terrorism is such a sweeping brush that it just has led to a horrific abuse of human rights and suffocation of freedom. People ask me, so did Turkey become Saudi Arabia? No, it became a kind of Russia with a strong, heavy dose of Islamic narrative built around it. Yes, there is some Islam and Islamism at play, but there is a heavy dose of nationalism and cultural personality. I'm always struck with this formulation of uh, sort of reformist leaders of Czechoslovakia in 1968 said that they wanted to create socialism with a human face. That experiment was forcibly abandoned when Soviet tanks rolled up. I think there's reason to be skeptical about whether it would have succeeded in any case. But I suppose if you want to use that formulation, the way to put it would be that Turkey today is Russia with a Muslim face. It is. And very similar. We don't have poisoning or that kind of fantastical or exotic techniques of, let's say, brutality that Putin uses. But in terms of the nature of the system built on one man, a hierarchy, a pyramid, and there's no separate judiciary, there is no independent, 90% of almost the media is controlled. For Americans to understand what has happened, imagine President Trump stood in power, not four years, but four terms. And imagine in the meantime, the QAnon conspiracy became the official worldview of the American Republic and the judiciary, especially. 
and also almost all of media. Because one thing that has happened in Turkey is that once Erdogan got the control of the judiciary and the bureaucracy, tax inspectors began to show up at the doors of media buses who are critical of the government, and obviously with a political intention. And those people had to sell their newspapers. And those newspapers became pro-government overnight with a lot of people losing their jobs and editors and writers. So there's been a huge swift towards authoritarianism. So I had better hopes about Turkey. It's still not a lost cause. I believe at some point there will be a post-Erdogan Turkey. And that post-Erdogan Turkey, if it is lucky, can get the lesson that we have seen the authoritarianism of the secular illiberals. We have seen the worst authoritarianism of the pro-Islamic or Islamist or conservative illiberals. Now maybe we can become a country which is not at war itself anymore and which can have a liberal order where everybody's equal and everybody has equal rights and the state is limited and neutral. There are forces in Turkey which still aspire to that. Even some Islamic conservatives are now fed up with Erdogan. So there are some opposition parties from within the religious sphere. And the seculars, I think, have seen some of their old mistakes. So I don't want to see Turkey as a lost cause. And that's why I don't agree with some of the people in Washington who say, Turkey is the next Iran, so let's just kick Turkey out of NATO and just consider it as a antagonistic power. I'll say, let's try to manage this really grim era in Turkish history, hoping that there may be an end to it and Turkey can recover from this really concerning dark chapter. Let me ask you a question about how you see Erdogan, because I tend to think of him in the framework of what I work on, which is authoritarian populism. And there's obvious similarities, as you mentioned, to a figure like Donald Trump or internationally to figures like Viktor Orban or Narendra Modi in India. And that helps to explain why he has been so inimical to democracy, the claim that he alone truly represents the people, which then leads to the delegitimization of alternative centers of power to recasting journalists who ask critical questions as terrorists or their sympathizers and the whole other machinery of demonization, which has allowed Erdogan to take such firm control of a country. Of course, there is in the context of this conversation also a different way of viewing Erdogan, which is as a political Islamist. And that might both put him in a slightly different context. I mean, then perhaps you would think of him more in the context of Islamist leaders in other parts of the Muslim world rather than comparing him to figures like Trump or Orban. And it might give us a different lesson about what it is about his political tradition that pushed him, despite these early pretenses at democratizing the country in an authoritarian direction. Which of these two is the more helpful frame or do we need both in order to understand Turkey? We need both. I mean, you can't say, is Erdogan Islamist or no? Yes, he is to some extent in a Turkish sense. First of all, who is an Islamist? I mean, if you look into Egypt, Muslim Brotherhood, typically Islamists want to Islamize society through the state. They want Sharia to be the basis of the legislation. Now, does Erdogan clearly want that? And has Turkey come to that level? No. In Turkey, there's no Islamic law still. Turkey is still a secular country. And will that happen in the next two years? Will Erdogan say all women should be covered? I don't think that's going to happen because ultimately he relies on popular support. And that popular support, like half of society vote for him, that half of society, maybe 10% are dogmatic Islamists. The rest 30% are just who want to believe in a strong leader, strong Turkey, and yes, religious values, religious rights. 
And there are some other people who are just, you know, on the payroll and think that the opposition may be worse. So he is an Islamist in the sense that he uses Islam in his political language to justify his rule. The people who don't support him, a few days ago, he was saying they come to us with the sword of the infidels. He was speaking about the opposition. So there's Islamism, and that Islamism especially comes out in the narrative that Erdogan has become the defender of the oppressed Muslims around the world. So it's very political. It's not legal. It's not Sharia. It's about Erdogan recasting Turkey as the leader of the Islamic civilization and the new Ottoman might and everything. But there's a lot of nationalism. There is also a third worldism. That's why among the people you likened Erdogan, you said Putin, Orban, very true. Chavez would be another one. People are not aware of that. One of Erdogan's political allies in Turkey today, not officially, but very clearly, is Doğu Perinçek, who is the founder of Turkish Maoism. And he's kind of China's man in Turkey for decades, from 1970s. And he's an atheist. He's not an Islamist, but he's also part of the Erdogan coalition. You can see this in the media and in his language. But there is an Islamist feeling there. And it is a feeling that we pious Muslims are the real owners of this country. The seculars are soulless degenerates, the coastal elites, that sort of thing. We are the heartland. We are the real people. And they are all sold out to great powers of conspiracy. So there's a huge conspiratorial narrative, which is... Again, in the U.S., it remains on propaganda. Like QAnon conspiracy is a crazy thing on the internet, and, and it's mobilized some people to attack the capital. In Turkey, that conspiracy becomes an indictment, <laughs> and you face that. So it is populism on steroids, with a heavy dose of Islam and nationalism combined. And there is a sense of revenge from the secularists that oppressed us for a century. That's why I'm calling on Turkish secularists to realize that, actually, I'm with them right now in the political scene, but you also brought this onto yourself a little bit. So take a lesson and go towards a more liberal direction. And this, I think, is a general lesson in all these deeply divided societies, of which Turkey certainly is one and has been one for a very long time, which is that I think people who want to play for total victory, never succeed. I think there's always a temptation when the clash between two sides is so deep to say the other side is bad and evil and we just have to completely push them out of a political system. And even the supporters of the other side need to either convert to our side or just be marginalized and outvoted and eventually hopefully they'll go away or they'll die out or something like that. And as a political strategy, that never works. Let me ask you a penultimate question about the mayor of the city in which you grew up, in Mamolu, who I understand, so first of all, is an interesting trend in many of these populist countries. You see it also in Poland and Hungary and other places where the capital city is ruled by the opposition because often they are, for various reasons, more liberal places. But Istanbul itself was a very split city and Mamolu managed to win this very important victory, as I understand it, in part because he precisely eschewed that kind of binary, because he went and toured the mosques of Istanbul and spoke to faithful there precisely in order to show that he was a different kind of secularist or a different kind of liberal than predecessors in his party would have been. Do you see Imamolu similarly positively as a lot of observers from the outside have? And if so, what lessons can we learn from him? Indeed, I am sympathetic to him. I was very happy <laughs> to see the day that he won Istanbul, which was a year ago. Imam Oulu was successful precisely because he was not the secularist caricature that 
has some roots and Erdogan likes to keep playing. Because Erdogan's argument is that if I go, you, you being his religious base, you will face the same illiberal secularists, he doesn't say illiberal, like the authoritarian or tyrannical secularists, which ban your headscarf for decades. If I go, those old people will come back. And Imamoglu, by his language and his persona, show that no, no, that's not going to happen. I'm CHP, which is secularist, you know, Atatürkist, which is coming from that tradition. But I'm respectful to religion. He knows how to recite the Quran. These are important things in Turkey. When there was an attack on Muslims and massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, a horrible terrorist attack, he went and recited the Quran in honor of the victims. So those kind of things, he was the man of the people. I think just like the fact that it took Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump, but not a far left figure. <laughs> Imam Oğlu was the right person to challenge Erdogan's party in a Turkish landscape. And so his centricism was, I think, right antidote. Whether he will be able to take this to a national level, I don't know. He's certainly a promising figure in the opposition. Whether he will be the CHP's candidate, I don't know how those things work. The opposition is still very divided. But the very fact that he was able to win against a ruling party by disarming the polarization that the ruling party intentionally deepens, I think is a good thing for Turkey. And it's a lesson for other countries. If you have a problem with populism, disarm it. <laughs> Don't deepen the divide. You said something very important. I mean, people in these existential struggles see the other side as something to destroy and subdue and push out of the system. Well, that battle has no winner. And if there's one winner, it's still bad. <laughs> and what you need between these blacks and whites, more gray areas, what you need is people who are speaking to both sides, who can relate to both sides. And the more we have that in Turkey, it will be good for Turkey. The more we have that in America, I think it will be good for America. Because of course, America is not at Turkey's level, but some of the political dynamics I saw in the U.S. in the past few years worried me as signs that I'm familiar with in Turkey. Thank God it didn't go far. I don't think it will go that far, but it's good to be cautious. And this deepening divide is really an unhealthy thing for any society. Let's round off the conversation by going back for a moment beyond Turkey to the future of Islam. You know, what should give young liberal Muslims hope for the future of a religion? Or to put the question a little bit differently, perhaps, You know, if 25 or 50 years from now, when our old age, we're drinking coffee somewhere and we're looking back at 25 or 50 years of positive developments, what would the story look like in retrospect that actually gets us to the liberal Islam you hope for and to liberal political regimes in much of the Muslim world? First of all, hopefully we'll have that 25 years later, have coffee experience. I'd like to keep that idea. And what gives them hope? As I said, the very fact that we've seen the worst of it. I think we've seen this whole ISIS, Al-Qaeda madness and probably the zenith of it. Probably it's not going to be repeated in the same way again. The fact that Iranian revolution, it just ended in a terrible failure. We've seen the Turkish revolution, as I call it. It is ending in a failure. I mean, it is actually similar to Iran, although in a much more milder dose a revengeful Islam comes back, supposedly bringing glory and success, but creating authoritarianism and misery. So in Saudi Arabia, I mean, there is a crazy prince which is killing his critics, so that's not acceptable. But on the other hand, there is social demand for a less religious policing and so on and so forth. So maybe 
some reforms will help the social scene ultimately get rid of the political authoritarian system there as well. So I don't see reasons to say this is Islam and it will never change. History of Islamic civilization shows there's a lot of change. And I think the very fact that we've seen really terrible episodes, which led a lot of Muslims to rethink these issues, shows that there is hope for change for a better future of the Islamic civilization. And with my work, I'm just trying to inject a good input into that huge landscape of the Islamic civilization, where in every Muslim society, from Malaysia to Indonesia to Pakistan to Algeria, Algeria is less open in terms of public space, but let's say to the Arab world, there's a discussion about how do we go forward as Muslims. And if you put good ideas into play, you can make a difference. And I hope I can say 20 years later, drinking coffee with you, I can say, I'm glad I wrote that book and it made a difference. I don't know whether it will, but that's my hope. Mustafa Akil, thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It was a pleasure. Let's do it again. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces, 